Hello? All right. Whatever. We'll make it work. Uh, again, my name is Aaron Cahoon. I'm pastor of Student Ministries here, and uh, we are continuing this month in the book of Titus in a message series that we're calling Gospel-Centered Leadership. And again, we introduce some nominated elders and an intern that's going to be joining us and leading this team. And Mike took us through uh, much of the first chapter, the first half of the first chapter, which was Paul's introduction uh, to the hearer, uh, Titus, and, and the church that he was working with to establish leadership in, we are going to continue along that vein. Um, Within this church, even though it was young, some different teachings had begun to sneak into the everyday life of the church, and those things can kind of sneak in in ways that we don't even realize, and sometimes we believe things uh, for different reasons, whether it's just the way that we understood them to begin with, whether we made it up from our own experience, or if we misunderstood what somebody had said. When I was young, uh, my mom, I was probably three or so, I must have asked why our cat's name was Butterfly, and she said, well, because there's butterflies in her head. And I was like, okay, cool. You know, that makes perfect sense, right, doesn't it? So I'm three years old, and, and so for years, I'm like, this is our cat Butterfly. She's got butterflies in her head, and that's why she's called Butterfly. And uh, one day, I don't know, I was probably seven or eight years old, and I'm petting my cat, and I look down on her, her head, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. There's a shape of a butterfly on her head. There was like this black dot in the middle and a wing that went on the one ear and a wing that went on the other ear. And I was like, my mind is blown. There's not butterflies in the cat's head. There's butterflies on the cat's head. And so I was like, okay, I understood. Now, I'm not going to go and call my mother a false prophet, okay? I just misunderstood what she had said to me, and in my immaturity, in my young age, that's just how I took it. I, I think of an, another instance, you know, watching TV, I definitely understood as a kid that these were these were shows, and they were made up, and things were happening, but the live news always kind of freaked me out. Live news was on about bedtime, and uh, and it, we lived in a four-story home. It's much less impressive uh, and much scarier than it sounds at, at first glance. And so my mom would be like, you should go change, get ready for bed. And I was like, there's no way I'm going upstairs by myself. It's scary up there. <laughs> and so I would change there in the living room, but we're watching TV and it's live. And if I can see them, <laughs> right, surely they can see me. So I would just climb behind the couch you know, and, and change, and they don't need to see me in my underoos. I don't need that kind of pressure on me. And, and, 
And so uh, that's what I understood at the time. And that was just something that I had made up on my own. Now, now my issues, you know, don't mock me, please. Like, I don't need that kind of stress in my life either. But it was just what I understood at the time. And so there's some of that that's taking place here, but there's a little bit more behind it. And, and Mike ended on verse 9, which is the same spot we're going to begin, which is uh, right after he talks about the qualifications of men in leadership. And, and he gets down to verse 9. This is why these things are needed. And he says this. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to be able to rebuke those who contradict it. And so the why behind the what is this, that we need people that can hold firm to the trustworthy word as it has been taught. So, again, with this thought, there's a couple of things within this. The first necessity is that this person holds firm. Now, holding firm is not a passive action. It's not like put it in your backpack and carry it with you or in your pocket so that you have it. It is an actively holding firm to the trustworthy word as it has been passed down to you. And so it's an active uh, uh, duty of this person to continually be working to make sure they have a firm grasp on it as the world tries to come in and pull this truth out of our hands. Secondly, it says this, to give instruction so that as they hold that truth firmly, they're able to encourage other believers with it, that they can come in for those that maybe haven't been taught yet and be an encouragement to them and say, this is what this means and and help them to continue to learn and to grow in a right fashion. The third is to correct those who have not. Now, this isn't just to chastise them, to shake their finger at, but actually to bring them to sound doctrine. And so to rebuke them, to teach them, to go back to the word, to go back to the teachings of the apostles and say, maybe you have a misunderstanding. See, there's not butterflies in the cat's head. There's butterflies on the cat's head so that that person can, oh, okay, I misunderstood. So to rebuke them and bring them back into sound doctrine. He continues in verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So again, he goes in and he gives three different descriptors. He says that there are some that are just not misinformed. They're plain insubordinate. Now, to be insubordinate is to be unaccountable. That that they are not willing to give an account to others to not fall into submission under the church. And there's three different ways that that takes place. First is is to one another. See, believers have uh, the, the necessity to encourage one another, to be there for one another, to rebuke one another and admonish one another, to support one another, to love one another. We have responsibilities to each other. But these insubordinate Christians uh, were, were not accountable to each other. They were neither accountable to the leadership. As Titus, I'm sure, had tried to come in and correct them. Uh, but Paul is encouraging him yet again. You must, they must be silenced because they're hurting and damaging families. So they were unaccountable to leadership, but ultimately they were unaccountable to scripture. 
Because the things that we teach and, and that are put forward to people have to fall in line with the entirety of what the scripture says. And these people that were, were pushing their own agenda were not accountable either to scripture. Secondly, he says that they're empty talkers. They talk and talk and talk, but their action doesn't back up their words. In James, we see these words. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. You deceiving yourself, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his own natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away, and at once he forgets what he looks like. He's saying that you have to come in, and, and whatever you say has to be backed by action. They can't just be empty promises. Your life has to support the things that you've said. One of my favorite authors, Brennan Manning, uh, he wrote the book uh, uh, Ragamuffin Gospel. And he said this. He said, the greatest single cause of atheism in this world is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him with their lifestyle. He's saying they can't just be empty talkers. Your life has to support the things that you are saying about Christ. And they all have to be in line with what scriptures say. Then the third descriptor, he says, they're deceivers. These people were manipulating the church and others in order to promote themselves. Now, for dishonest gain, we're not exactly sure what that was about. It could have been uh, about finances. They could have been gaining financially. They could have been gaining socially within their culture. Or maybe it was just an ego-driven thing. But they were dishonest in order to promote themselves for dishonest gain. And families were being damaged, and that's why Paul is admonishing, really, Titus to say, you have to focus in. You have to silence them. You need support and leadership that understands the truth of Scripture in order to have your back. In Titus chapter 1, verse 12, he continues, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said this, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Now, there in Crete, this was a location that had a lot of mercenaries that lived in the area. And so these mercenaries were were just men for hire. So they weren't above lying to people in order to be something that their employer needed to be. In fact, in that time, to be a Cretan meant to be a liar. And this is a slang that we still use to today. And so it gives you a descriptor of of who these people were and what the culture was like. And yet there was these ethnically Jewish people who said they followed Jesus, but were not following with their life. And they were heaping on to the Christians who were coming to believe a lot of these mercenaries who once were liars, but are now coming to understand Christ and these Jewish uh Christians are heaping on the law and saying you have to follow things from the Old Testament. You have to be circumcised in essence to become a Jewish person before you can then in turn become a Christian person. And they were also heaping on all kinds of other things that aren't even found in the scripture but were just Jewish myths and traditions. Now, the church in Galatia faced a similar circumstance with the circumcision party. And Paul wrote to them as well. And this is what he said to the church in Galatia. He said, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. 
For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. He's in essence saying that the same thing is happening in Crete, is happening in Galatia. And as people walk away uh, from, from grace-based things and they walk back towards the law, if there's a bunch of stuff we have to do, then, then we are diminishing the work of the cross. He's saying if you have to be circumcised, if you have to follow all these rules in order to be good enough or in order to qualify yourself, then what is the power of the cross? He's saying that we have faith that Jesus has already taken care of this. And so he's saying, focus again, not on the law, not on the things of the past, but on Jesus and the work that he did. Verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him with their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul, again, points to the state of their hearts. And he says if their hearts are pure, then their lives are going to line up with that. But if not, if their hearts are impure, then everything they touch will be defiled. Everything they look at and do, if, if they're not pure on the inside, is going to be corrupt also. In essence, he's saying this. He says, look at the fruit of their lives. Just look at their lives and the things that they're saying and the things that, that it is producing. And he says, does the fruit match up with the tree? If they say they're a Christian, does their life exude joy and peace and hope? Not that we can't have hardships. Not that we can't have moments in time that we get frustrated. But overall, do we display the fruit of the Spirit? Jesus also talked about this in Matthew chapter 7. He said this, beware of false prophets. He's preparing us even before he goes. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit." So again, Paul's pointing them back. Just look at their lives as the fruit that comes out of it line up with what they profess to be true. And yet he's not just talking about how they're, they're worthless and to be thrown out. Although he does use these words. He said they're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But this is kind of at the end uh, of an accountability period. If you look back at verses 9. And verse 13, Paul's intention is for these believers to be brought back into relationship. Back into relationship, a healthy relationship with other believers. Back into a healthy relationship with God. And, and if they would become submitted to the scriptures, if they would become submitted to one another and to their leadership, then they could be brought back in. And the words he used there is that they can follow sound doctrine. And to be sound simply means to be healthy. And to be complete, to be whole again. And so Paul's intention throughout writing this is that people, as, even if they get off on a tangent because uh, of, of they misunderstood something. Because they formed an opinion on their own apart from scripture. Or if they're straight trying to deceive people, if they would become accountable, 
they could be made whole and healthy again. And yet if they don't, then that's where these words, detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work, comes in. When Ben was home, uh, my son, from college, over the Christmas break, he worked at a local Clayworks uh, establishment here in town, and he's, he's building plates and mugs uh, for, for class assignments as well as to sell online. And uh, we loaded some up near the end of his time home, and we're driving home, and there is this crash in the back seat. And I freak out because I'm like, oh, my goodness, that's a lot of work and a lot of money. And we just broke stuff. And I was driving, so it's probably my fault. And, and, and Ben's like, it's all right. Don't worry about it. And I'm, I'm worried about it, okay? <laughs> I'm going to be honest. And, and we get to the house, and we get out, and, and he jumps in the back, and he picks up a plate, and he flicks it. And he goes, it's okay. And I was like, what do you mean it's okay? And he goes, listen to this. And he flicks it again and goes, dung. And it resonates much like a symbol resonates. And he says, that's what I had to do at work all the time is check things as they come out of the kiln that they're okay. You see, if a plate even internally has a fracture or a crack, it won't resonate like that because the sound can't travel through the clay right. And he said, so it's, it's fine. It's whole. If it isn't whole, if it's broken, it won't sound. And so this thought of sound doctrine resonates with throughout the wholeness of a person's life. That the words that they say and the fruit that comes out of them resonates. And it is sound, it is whole, and it is healthy. Now these were the issues that the church in Crete was facing. That Paul is addressing to Titus to say, hey, this is why you need to establish healthy, godly, gospel-centered leadership in your community. So that we can promote healthy families and a healthy church. And again, that's about the people, not the building. And so he says, this is what you need to do because people are coming against the church already, even in its infancy, with false teachings. And those people, they have to be stopped. And the proof is simply the trustworthy word is taught. That's how you stop them. You always compare what they're saying back to the scriptures and the teachings of the apostles. Now this last week, our eldership was able to get away and we did some study and we found ourselves in quite a few of, of these verses in Titus and in First Timothy uh, in Ephesians chapter 4. And as we looked through the scriptures, we were just trying to make sure that, that the way we were leading and, and putting things forward were in conjunction with the scripture, with the totality of what the Bible says. And we looked at this concept of false doctrine. And I think a lot of times we look at false doctrine and inaccurate teachings as possibly a thing of the distant past and not something we need to look at today. But as we look closer, we talked about some things that we see sneaking into the church in the year 2018. I want to share just some of, of that with you. There's an uh, organization called the Barna Research Group, and this is a well-respected research uh, establishment. And they did a study of Christianity in America in the year 2016, and this is what they found out. They found out that 73% of Americans consider themselves to be Christian. And, and that seemed a little bit high to me, and then as I continued to read this study, it said, but they did something else and... and identified a group called practicing Christians, those who went to church maybe just once a month and said that church and their faith was a very important aspect of their life. And that number came in at 31% of Americans say faith is very important and are involved in church at least monthly. So within that group, they asked some questions. They asked, do you have a personal responsibility to tell others about your religious beliefs? 
And 54% disagreed with that. So 54% of the practicing Christians in America believe that I have no responsibility to share my faith with others. In essence, to say this, my faith is a personal faith. It's my personal faith and my personal relationship with Jesus Christ. See, the problem with that is that that doesn't line up with the totality of Scripture. You see, in Scripture, we have a personal faith, but we more so have a communal faith. Remember, we talked about those one another's. We have responsibility to one another, to encourage one another, love one another, rebuke one another. We have a lot of things that we have responsibility to one another about. We also have this little thing called the Great Commission. To go out into the world and to share with people your relationship with Jesus. When Jesus prayed, he said this, our Father. Now, this is Jesus, our, not my father, our father who art in heaven. How be your name? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation. See, we are in relationship with one another. So for 55% of practicing Christians to not believe they need to share their faith with others is disturbing to me. Also, it read uh, through this study that 55% agree that a person, if generally good or does good enough things for others during their life, they will earn for themselves a place in heaven. If we're good enough, then we're going to find ourselves in heaven. I mean, that makes sense, right? You got the weighing the balance, and, and if, if you do bad, then you do some good. You make up for it. We do bit more good than bad, and at the end of the day, we'll end up in heaven. The problem with that, that doesn't agree with the totality of what Scripture says. You see, it's not about what we do. That's what the whole circumcision party was talking about. That's why Titus is is being addressed by Paul here. It's, It's not about being circumcised and following the law. It's about grace and the work that Jesus already did. Grace is undeserved favor, and yet 55% believe that we can do enough good to find ourselves in heaven. Pew Research Center, another uh, research organization, found this. 80% of professing Christians believe in a heaven. Now, 80%, that's a pretty good and high number. But what that means is that there's 20% that don't believe in heaven. Like, what are we in this for? This is a lot of work. This stuff isn't easy. And it also showed that 60% believe in hell. Now, isn't that convenient that there is possibly a good place to go, but, but not a bad place? That 60% of Christians believe in literal hell. Now, these are things that, that, to me, again, are disturbing. They don't match up with what Scripture says, although it makes sense, as more of their research showed, that only 61% of these believers view the Bible as the inspired Word of God. And so when you're doing your... your uh, when you're, when you're testing things against the totality of Scripture, I suppose if you don't believe this book, then it's hard to believe a lot of the things that it talks about. And yet, these are things that not only take place out in the world, but also creep into the church. Now, we talked about a few others as well. There's a thought of a prosperity gospel that God wants and is most concerned with your health, your wealth, and your happiness. A lot of believers, I think, talk about this and believe this. The problem is that doesn't line up with the totality of Scripture. In fact, in Luke, Jesus said this, said that there was great crowds accompanying Jesus and turned to him and, and he said this, If anyone would come after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? Whether he has enough money to complete it, otherwise when he has laid out a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Now, Jesus isn't talking about hating, hating our mothers and our fathers, but what he's saying is that Jesus needs to be so important in our lives that all of our other relationships pale in comparison. He then goes on to say, you should be willing to pick up your cross daily and follow me. Guess what? When you picked up your cross, you weren't going home. That's what it meant. In Roman culture, if you picked up a cross, you were dying on that cross. And this is what Jesus says. Are you willing to give up and even put your own life as unimportant in comparison to me? And then again, count the cost. Who builds a tower but doesn't see if they can finish it through? When entering this this relationship with Jesus, are you really willing to do what it takes? Now again, Jesus did all the hard work on the cross. We get to go to heaven. But life may not be easy. It'll be better. This is what I talk to teenagers all the time about. You know what? You're not even on the evil one's radar right now. But when you start to follow him, your life will get more difficult. It will be better, but it will not be easy. How about concepts like this? Luck. Don't Christians believe in luck? Now, luck points to the thought that there's no order in the universe, that there's no intelligent design. Therefore, there's no intelligent designer. See, luck is all about what possibly might happen to us. And and so we say things like, wish me luck, I've got a big interview today. Luck. A second one, fate or destiny. See, fate or destiny points to there being everything in your life already preordained. And that the things that we decide don't play any role in that. And a lot of faith, uh, a lot of people of faith, I think, believe in fate and destiny. Here's a third one, karma. Karma is the sum of a person's actions in this life and possibly previous lives will play out in the the fate or, or what happens to us in the future. In essence, if you put enough good into the world, you'll get good out of the world. The problem with that, luck, fate, karma don't line up with the totality of what Scripture says. You see, we don't put good out into the universe and get good back. That's not, it's not just uh, something that happens by our own will and desire. And actually, the flip side of that kind of goes like this. If something bad happens, we say, we say man, karma's a, like a cruel mistress or something <laughs> like that. You all know. Now, Christians don't like to use the word karma. We don't, we don't use that word. We don't like that word too much. And yet we still believe in this. It points us back to the, the stat from earlier. 55% of us believe if we do enough good, that we'll earn a place in heaven. That's a concept of karma. We just don't like that word. And so we choose not to use that word in particular. You know what word we do love? Tradition. Oh, we love tradition. Right? Come on. We love tradition. Be here with me. Admit it. Now, I love tradition, too. I'm not against it. I have a lot of traditions, especially around the holidays and things that my family does together. Uh, We make cake in the morning. uh, and and, Well, we make cake the night before and eat eat cake uh, for Jesus' birthday before opening presents. We do stockings, and then we read out of Luke chapter 2 the story to put into perspective uh, our gifts in, in relationship to the gift that was given to us. But sometimes traditions become gospel to us. 
And we say, you can't open presents until we read Luke chapter 2. We have to do these things. And within the church, we love our traditions. And sometimes traditions supplant gospel. And traditions become king. And these are the false doctrines that the church deals with today. Remember verse 14, it says this. They devoted themselves to old Jewish traditions. It wasn't even things that the Bible talked about that they were devoting themselves to here in the book of Titus. It was old myths and old traditions that had supplanted the truth of the gospel. So we have to be aware. We have to be aware of these things as, as Paul addressed them to the church in Crete, but we have to be aware of them here in our lives too. We have to look at our own lives. What are some things that have snuck in as false teaching into our own lives? And again, maybe it was just something that we misunderstood. Maybe it was something that as somebody taught it, we didn't quite catch it right or we invented it out of our own life experience or possibly there are people that are pushing and pushing their own agenda, but they sound good and they sound right. We always have to be testing and proofing them against what the scripture says. And this is what Paul is saying. You need men in place that can help you with that. You're capable of it on your own, but we need to be there for one another. And so find for yourself people that can come alongside you, that can hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to be able to rebuke and bring back into sound doctrine those that have not followed it. That's why we're focused on this this month. That's what we're looking at. We have to look at our own lives and what are the things that have snuck in and supplanted gospel and supplanted truth and have established a foothold in our own lives because God wants to come back to us and wants to bring us into a healthy relationship with each other and with him so that we're sound, so that we resonate, so that when we're put to the test, we resonate with his word and his will for our lives. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for not just leaving us here to do this on our own. God, that we have each other. God, that we have your word to support us. God, that we have your Holy Spirit alive, uh, alive in our lives. Um, just to convict us and teach us. And God, to bring us more in line with who you are. Allow us to be there for each other and to help challenge some of the things in life that have maybe snuck in. God, you are so good, and we worship you alone today. We'd say these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This time of communion is set aside for us to remember again the truth. That there aren't a bunch of list of things that we should do or shouldn't do. In order to be in a right relationship with Jesus, but simply understanding and accepting that he took care of that work on the cross. That grace, his undeserved favor in our lives is enough. And so we're going to pass these elements. It's a cracker representing his body that was broken. It's a cup of juice that represents his blood that was spilled. And we collect this, we collectively do this together, remembering that we're in this with one another. That we are here collectively for each other under, uh, under submission to the cross. That he has taken care of all the, the work as we worship and as we sing. You hold those elements, take them as, as you're just worshiping him in your own way. Thanking him for doing this in our lives. Ushers, you guys can come forward. Let's sing together.